0: Morning. Morning. Let me add to the other voices that, to say Happy Father's Day to the dads, granddads, uncles, you know, proxy uh, surrogates in the room. Hope it's a great Father's Day. This is the beginning of a good day for all of you. Also, let me say, if you happen to be—this is this is maybe apropos for Father's Day and Mother's Day—if you got dragged to church today, uh, joking—but you know, uh, aren't here every Sunday? We're glad that you are here on celebrating Father's Day. And let me just say a few words by way of introduction into this passage because we are in a series. Uh, we do, you know, sometimes through a book of the Bible or whatever in, in, on a Sunday morning. And this one is a series on one passage, but it's pretty familiar even if you're not so familiar with the, the Bible, John chapter 3. So we're kind of coming in the middle of the movie saying that, but hopefully this will uh, be um, meaningful to you as well. So our passage, John chapter 3, where we left off last week John chapter 3, you can use the Bibles in front of you, the phones in your hands, or the screens behind me. And today is a focus really more or less on probably the most well-known Bible verse in the New Testament, in the Bible itself, John 3.16, God's great love. And John 3.16, we'll read it in a second, you know, God so loved the world, is not only the best known um, passage, uh, I would say, for you know, Christians, non-Christians about the Bible. Probably the most preached or talked about, you know, even mini-sermons you see on a football game or something. Um, and what is John 3.16? It's a moving summary of the gospel that is God's love to the world. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is, is an expression of that. It's, a, it's the gospel cast in terms of the love of God. Okay, Cast in terms of... Of the love of God, um, as human beings, if we um, think about it, we cannot really fathom the extent of the love of God. I mean, I don't know what would be an example, you know, uh, of a subject that is so big and so vast. Because even if you say, how you know, the love of your father or the love of your husband, even that would be your wife or friend or child or mom or dad. That's a big thing, right? Because you have to know somebody well to be able to appreciate their love, right? Because, you know, I know them and I've known them now for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I'm a growing understanding of their love. Well, then transfer that to God, who we have much less of a knowledge and a working knowledge of. God is much more vast, at least if you believe the Bible's version, of so much more vast. So to, to talk about the God's love, which is kind of our subject this morning, it is um, something that we really can't fathom, but we believe, I believe, if you happen to be a Christian, some of us are here in this room, not all of us perhaps, but you know, if you're, you believe that this is something that happened in history, the expression of God's love, and I would say is not only the most profound event in history, here we are talking about the sending of Jesus 2,000 years later, but I would say more than a, a profound event, I would suggest to you, it is Um, the expression of reality itself. Okay, that's such a big subject. That the love of God sent into this world is not just a great thing to talk about, it's a great thing to experience if you have experienced it, if you want to experience it. But in some ways, in another way, it's a demonstration of ultimate reality itself. So let's dive in for a few minutes. This title of this sermon is called A Great Love. Two short verses, you could probably say them uh, without looking John 3:16 and 17 says these words For God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him a great love First thing this passage tells us maybe my most important point in this short sermon, is this great love begins in God. I think, what do you mean by that, Rob? This great love begins in God. Now, the Bible tells us that God is love, just that straightforward statement, it's even a verse of scripture or two, and that this love that has been shown to new humanity is not only a love that we can know personally, In some way, we can rejoice in it, those of us who who may do that as well. But this love is not just something that God does, it's not just something that is, let's say, revealed through the Bible and other places. It is also a revelation of who God is. This is what the Bible says. In other words, when God expresses love, this is what the Bible would say. When God expresses love, this isn't true of me. This isn't true of you, I don't think. When God expresses love, it's a demonstration of his nature, right? It's not just something he pulls out of his wallet or pulls off the shelf of his qualities and says, well, I think I will love Abigail today. I think I will, you know, love Ken today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exercise this. I'm going to deliver this to this person. It's an expression, according to the Bible, of who God is is, okay? Express, love is the way he expresses his nature. So I would say to you today, you, you know, you would expect to hear this from a pastor, but I mean this, that God loves you. I mean, I believe that, right? I, I'm just saying, I believe whoever you are, whatever your backstory is, whatever interest you have in the things of God, that God loves you, yet, here's the point, this great love begins in God. There is nothing particular in the object's of his love and the object of his love that calls it forth, right? That prompts it. He doesn't love you more when you're good. He doesn't move towards closer because you're good and then he moves further away from you when you're bad. So God does love you. I'm affirming that. I think the Bible teaches that. But it's important to understand this great love begins in God. There's nothing in me, in you, that calls it forth. That says, "Love me for this reason." This love, that we're you know uh, uh, pointing out this morning, celebrating this morning, talking about this morning, is awakened by something in God. This is what the Bible teaches. Something free, something unevoked, and listen, as far as we know, uncaused. At least I can't. I could. I could. I could. You know, philosophize with you. But I cannot tell you, oh my goodness, I can barely understand my own heart. What, how can I possibly look into the character, the intelligence, the wisdom of God and tell you why he loves you, why he loves me, why he loves anybody? The Bible says he does it, but it's about something that's been awakened in God. Let me give you Paul's example. You say, Rob, what are you talking about? Romans 5.8. Familiar verse. But Paul's trying to say the same thing in a very crisp way, answering the same question. Why does God love anybody? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this colon, making a point. While we were still sinners, which in, in the in the vocabulary of the Bible a sinner, going back to the New Testament, says, while I'm still someone who could care less about God, all, have, all we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has, you know, that's what humanity, what it means to be a sinner is to someone to say, I will run my life my own way. Thanks for your advice. I'm not interested in it. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. That's another way of talking about it. And, and Paul is saying, listen, if you wanna understand the gospel, let me give it to you in a simple sentence. While we were Turned our life around and asked God to forgive me. While we were turned over a new leaf and decided we were going to do the right thing, while we were on up to the right and doing better in our lives, in our marriages, in our work, and in our in our being nice to people. No, while we were yet sinners, at that very time, Christ died for us. Paul's trying to make a point that for this great love begins in God. It's unprovoked. Tim Keller, who I've quoted this before, but I love it as a metaphor, he said, what does it mean to be a Christian? He said, it's kind of like being kissed awake, right? Isn't that what all the wives did to their husbands this morning? <laughs> Kiss them awake, right? It's, it's, it's an imperfect idea, but he's saying if you want to know what being a Christian is, it's almost like you're dead. you're asleep. You're completely unconscious. And God comes to you for no other reason than a love that's motivated in his heart. Listen to the, uh, another verse of Scripture. It says similar things, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But because of his great love for us, this is the motivation, because of his great love for us in this, or excuse me, um, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. Now, he's talking about a spiritual death there, but he's just trying to make the same point. Right? God doesn't come to you. And it's important saying this because even Christians, and some of us are Christians, some of us aren't, but we have this mixed up view, right? That Christianity, Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, is a performance-based thing. It's really about how good-looking you are, how lovely you are, how good you are, and the better you are of those three things, the more closer God is to you, and, the, and, the, and to the degree that you are not those things, God moves away from you. Where did you get that? You're either accepting a God or not accepting a God who's not the one revealed in here. While you were dead, could you have a stronger metaphor? When you were dead in trespasses and sins, God said to you, now I'm going to come to you and love you and give you life. This great love begins in God. This is not my sentence, but I'm going to read it to you. The true looking of faith is the placing of Christ before one's eyes and beholding in him the heart of God poured out in love. Think about this. The the ubiquitous, timeless symbol of Christianity, the Christian faith, is the cross. Now, there could be other symbols, right? Could be loaves and fishes, could be staff, a shepherd. So it could be a lot of things. But the ubiquitous symbol, I think you can see the, you know, the Rio de Janeiro Christ from, from, the, from, the, you know, from outer space kind of thing. In other words, you can see it everywhere. Okay, the cross, what an odd thing to have chosen as the symbol. Because you know, I mean, we've, we, it's, it's, we, we've reimagined it in 2,000 years of history, but the cross was the, sort of the electric chair okay, of the first century. But the cross of Jesus Christ, think about this for a second as I read this sentence again. The true looking of faith is placing Christ, you might say on the cross, before one's eyes and beholding in him the heart of God poured out in love. Is that what you see when you see the cross of Jesus Christ? The heart of God poured out in love. That's what you're supposed to see. And if that's not what you see, that's why Christianity hasn't um, ignited your life or my life. Second thing, this great love first is, begins in God. It's very important. This great love is beyond belief, okay? This great love is beyond belief. The object of God's love in this verse, we just read it, is the world, right? For God so loved, what's the object of that sentence? The world. Now, the world, it's used 185 times in the New Testament, overwhelmingly, 102, by John the Apostle. He's, he wrote actually four books of the New Testament, John's Gospel, the book of Revelation, and the three epistles to John. He's the one that uses it. And there's times when he'll say it the way you and I would use it, the world, you're speaking, generally speaking, of humanity. But overwhelmingly, consistently, John uses this term not to talk about benign humanity or a shorthand for the people of the world, but to speak of the wickedness of the world in its rebellion against God. That's what he's mostly talking about. He's talking about the world system, okay, okay? The system, that the system of this world, or the systems of this world, for reasons that are beyond our intelligence, the systems of this world are organized against the God who created the world. Let me give you just one example of that use. John 15, 18, the words of Jesus. If the world hates you, he's talking to his disciples. These disciples were halfway through their three-year training, and they were saying, like you and I might say, the Christian, this is, is, I don't think this is really what I'm up for. I'm getting more hate mail than I did before I became a Christian kind of a thing. Like, why am I doing this? If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Now think about that for a minute. Before you decide whether or not you believe it, just, just let it settle into your heart to say, if, if, if you take the Bible at face value, Jesus is God the Son. And he's saying to his disciples, listen, the world that I created all around you, I'm talking about the world as a, as a series of systems, as, 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 as what people do and believe and express. This world hates me. Okay? That's the world that we've come in to love. And that's what John's trying to say. When you listen to this verse, for God so loved the world, it doesn't hit us this way today, 2,000 years later, but it was meant to be, in a manner of speaking, a shock. Because what you expected here is, for God so loved good people, for God so loved Jewish people, for God so loved moral people, God so loved fill in the blank, whatever your sort of label is that you or I like. God loved these kinds of people. And John says, for God so loved The world, right? The system organized against him. The same guy, or let me say it this way, it's against the backdrop of the wickedness of the world that God loves sinners. That's what I'm trying to say. D.A. Carson, another great theologian of our time, said these words, saying uh, essentially what I'm trying to say here about this word. This love is not to be admired because the world is so big, And include so many people. For God so loved the world. It's big. Seven billion people. Whatever. But because the world is so bad. And it's rebellion against God and his ways. I'm just trying to bring that out to you. This love is beyond belief. Because God comes to a world. That doesn't want anything to do with him. Generally speaking. That's basically thumbing its nose at him. That's saying. I'm going this way. I'll do it my way. I don't want your advice. I don't want your love. I don't want your help. God says, I'm coming anyway. This great love is beyond belief. The same guy who wrote John 3.16 wrote John 3.1. Listen to these words. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Leave that verse up there. This is what John's saying. And John was an insider. He was a believer. He was a disciple. He said, listen, he's having this moment, these letters written later in his life. See what great love the Father, what a word, has lavished on us. That's his testimony. That we, that I should be called the children of God. I think there's a sense of disbelief in that. There's a sense of wonder in that. And to make it even better, not only is he calling me, John, or me, Rob, or me, George, a son of God. I don't feel like a son of God. I don't feel like a daughter of God. He's not only calling me, that John's saying, listen, this is what we are. There's a sense of wonder, almost a sense of disbelief. This great love is beyond belief. Let me ask you this, question, as I ask myself, if you happen to be a Christian. Do you have that wonder as a part of your life today? In other words, do you have that sense of wonder, that sense of disbelief that says, isn't it amazing that God loves me? There's a story, Luke chapter 17, if you're a note taker. It's... Um, I've always thought it was interesting Jesus heals these 10 lepers, people that have leprosy. And leprosy existed all the way uh, to the present day, certainly into the 20th century. It's a long time standing disease. But in Jesus' day, pre-scientific age, people, um, it was a death sentence, right? There was no medications. And they just basically, you know, you talk about, some of us have been quarantined over the last two years. I mean, you know, our 14 days or five days or whatever it is these days, you know, with the coronavirus. The, The people who had leprosy, They were quarantined if they had this horrible disease for their entire natural life. Their entire natural life. If you were 7 or 17, they said, you've been diagnosed or it's obvious you have a a leprosy. This is what they did 2,000 years ago. They didn't give you a prescription. They didn't give you the day off of school or work. They said, you're going to go to this place called a leper colony and you're going to spend the rest of your natural life there. So Jesus says, this is careful. Jesus is walking down the border... John 17, Luke 17, between Galilee and Samaria. What does that mean? It means nothing to you and me, but this is what it means. Where the good people live, where the bad people live in the history, in the mindset of the New Testament. It says so Jesus is walking by, and in the bad area, Samaria, there are 10 people standing at a distance. Why are they standing at a distance? Because they, that's what they did with everybody. It wasn't just Jesus. They were told on, 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 on the threat of who knows, violence, don't get near anybody except people like you. At a distance, and they said, Master, small town, they'd heard about Jesus, have mercy on us. And Jesus says, you're healed. Speaks the word. And he says, go to the priests and just tell them what happened. Jesus moves on his way. This all happens in, in no time. Jesus keeps walking. But I want you to think for a minute about what it means to have experienced any miracle would be a miracle, you know, if I was healed from anything. But to be healed from, let's say, being in a wheelchair is one thing, be a miracle, or or, 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 or disfigured limb as Jesus did this, other things. But to be healed from leprosy was, was sort of a double amazing thing. Because lepers were removed basically from all human community, all human touch, and really any sense of hope. So to be healed from leprosy wasn't just, I don't need to take my medication anymore. I don't need to, um, I I can, can, for the first time, I can look in a mirror, right? For the first time, I realize I can actually go and live with my family or live with other people. I can go to the market. I walk into life in a way that I have never done before. And this is what's so amazing. So this is what happens to these people. But what happens is, as Jesus is walking down, one of these guys comes back, just one. And he comes back and finds Jesus sometime later, and he falls down on the ground. He's broken with joy and gratitude. It's a great love beyond belief. And he's saying, He says, in a loud voice, he said, thank you. Now, here's what's so interesting about this passage. Jesus says, at least what's recorded, he might have said a lot of things, he doesn't say, it's great to see you, it's wonderful, you know, uh, I'll give you a hug. He says, listen, to his disciples, to you, to me, he says, what happened to the other nine? And then he tells you something about the other nine. They were all Jewish. Only this one foreigner, a Samaritan, is the one that came back. How was it that these other nine people also received that healing, also no longer looked the way they did, also could now look in a mirror, also had the joy and the amazement of knowing that they were going to be able to return to to life and humanity in a way, and none of them came back except this one. And then he says to this guy, the other ones, as far as we know, their healing was intact. They they, they walked away a healed uh, people. But he says to this one guy, now go, your faith has made you whole. What's Jesus saying? They all were healed, but only one of them truly experienced faith the way it was meant to be experienced. Only one of them understood John 3, 1, behold how great love the Father has lavished on me that I should be called a son or daughter of God and this is what I am. Okay? this love is beyond belief and if this love has if you haven't understood it for what it is that it's born in the heart of God it's not anything about you it's not anything about me good or bad God has sent himself his son into this world to let you know in all your rebellion in all your sin in all your indifference in all your anger to say listen to kiss you awake and say I love you for no other reason than something that's inside of me If that doesn't capture your imagination, God help us. God help you because there's nothing else in this world that comes within a million miles of that kind of love. You will never, ever, ever find it. This is what John's saying. This is what John is saying. I had one uh, 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 pastor said this guy I like. Here's how you know you're a real Christian and not just a religious person. A real Christian is someone who says, it's an absolute miracle that God could love me. Here's how you know whether or not you're a real Christian. And the church is full of all of these, right? You know, this parable, the sower, etc. How do you know if you're a real Christian or just a religious person? Ask yourself this question. A real Christian, so to speak, is someone who knows it's an absolute miracle that God could love me. That's how you know. Let me tell you this about myself. The older I get as a Christian, been one since I was a college student, and the older I get as a human being and get to know myself a little bit better, the more the wonder that God loves me at all has captured my imagination, right? Oh, how great love the Father has lavished upon me that me, that this guy, could be called the Son of God and indeed is a Son of God. A real Christian is not thrown by the greatest disappointments, they shouldn't be, if they've not lost a sense of this disbelief about God's love. And to the degree to which you can keep that wonder, that love before you, that's the lesson of the 10th leper, you can handle anything in life because you don't deserve anything. This whole idea of entitlement, oh my goodness, our culture is so full of entitlement, all the way down to the third graders, all the way up to you know, our, our, our political discourse. It's a big, fat lie and waste of time. It is a wonder and a miracle that God loves you and that he loves me and he has done everything he can to show up to you and say, while you are yet a sinner, while you are uninterested, while you, in a manner of speaking, are diseased to the core, I love you. Go and be healed. I'm going to kiss you awake. If you say no to that, you're a fool. Really? You're a fool. Because there's nothing else in this world that comes anywhere close. And the world's full of so many lies about the love of God, which is my last point here. This great love, stay with me for five more minutes, is a rescue mission. That's what the Bible says. That's why I read the 17th verse. This great love is a rescue mission. Why is it important for me to say that? Listen carefully. Before you tune out, why is it important for me to say to you, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, that this great love is a rescue mission? Why is it important for you to know, if if you're a communicator of the gospel to friends, that, that, that this great love is a rescue mission? Because the love of God is not an obvious fact to most people, to the overwhelming majority of people, that are walking around in the world. Most people, like you used to be or still are, who traffic in the world from the news cycle to their home life, are taking in the world in small and big ways. My experience at school, my experience at home, my experience in in culture, I'm taking in the world, and as they take into the world, they're not coming to the obvious conclusion that God is love or there's a loving God in the world. Why would they? That's what John is talking about here. That's why this verse 17 is attached to 16. Listen again. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why say that? Well, he says that because if all you have is the world, that's how you're making a judgment about anything, that's the obvious conclusion you're going to come to. You're going to say, listen, whoever made this broken world is not a God of love. I have people tell me that all the time. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. It may feel that way because you're judging this big question about God's love from the newspaper, from the news cycle. Listen, from your own experiences. We'll we'll talk about this next week in the last message, but let me say this. Why does he say that God did not send his son to condemn the world? The next verse is going to say this. You know why that's true? For two reasons. One, because of God's love. The second reason is the world's condemned already that's the irony the world's condemned already you come into this world i come into this world we don't come into this world and someone makes a mess of it we don't come into this world and somebody jams up my road with rocks or potholes my my pathway to happiness that's already the way the world is it's condemned already in the gospel why is it condemned already? Isn't God the maker of the world? Yes, he is, but it's called human sin and freedom. That's the reality. And God's not, you're not a robot or a puppet. You can live your life however you want. But God says, listen, yes, the world's a broken place. It's not the way I intended it. In thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth it is in heaven. That's where it's coming. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm, an, I'm on a rescue mission. Are you interested? It's up to you. It's up to me. Lamentations 3.22. I've gotten into this habit, a quick little habit for myself. As I said, the older I get as a Christian, the older I get as a human being and have a greater appreciation for my own um, imperfect heart, the more the wonder of the gospel is mine. I've, t- I've tried to do this over the last few years, just a little, before I go to bed every night, lay in bed, and just for a minute, half a minute, and I just try to think through, kind of what Jason did in this in a few minutes ago in worship and music, and I, and I say, I just wanna think of one thing, maybe it's one, maybe it's two, of something I can thank God for. I'm trying to cultivate gratitude, and I am almost never get you know, miss it. I mean, if I'm thinking about it. Lord, I just wanna thank you for this small thing, this word, this encouragement, this friend, this whatever, this gift. And then I try to wake up every morning you're familiar with the verse um, that says, you know, God's compassions are, are rich. There are new mercies every morning. And I realize that every day, in, in, as a Christian, every day as a human being, if you walk with God, it's a fresh, clean sheet approach. Hey. Even parenting's not that way, right? But that's the way, or marriage's not that way. But with God, it's a clean sheet approach. And it says you can come to him every morning and say, I want a new mercies. And you know what? I come to God every morning and say, God, give me new mercies. But listen to this verse that we often quote. This is just a part of uh, uh, Lamentations 3.22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning, right? But that verse is not only a precious promise about God's mercy, listen carefully, it's a worldview. It's a worldview. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Well, what's consuming you? What would be consuming me? Consume? What's after me that I need God's compassion and mercy? The world's condemned already. The world that hated me before it ever hated you. The systems of this world have been organized against the ways of God from the very beginning. It, the world is, is, is a system that is out to. Tear you down and tear me down. I don't mean that in some, you know, uh, mystical, overly mystical way. It's the nature of a broken world. That's a worldview. God's great love is a rescue mission. Right? It's a rescue mission. Don't confuse what's going on in the world with what's going on with God. God is not the world. He's come to rescue the world. This great love is beyond belief. You know, uh, today, tomorrow, it's Juneteenth. Some of us don't even know what that means, so it's a new national holiday. But it's just an interesting metaphor for this point. What Juneteenth is is it's the holiday where apparently, some general, long days before the internet was around, you know, before Twitter was around, you know, news traveled slowly. And after Emancipation Proclamation happened, it took a year or 2 for the word to get around, that's, that slavery had been uh, ended. And so some generals down there in Texas, and in Galveston, Texas, I think two years after Lincoln signed the, the, the document, and he says, by the way, it's over, you can go home. I mean, can you imagine... Just imagine for a minute. It's hard for us to imagine that's the, the, that kind of thing, right? You, you, it's all you knew. Whether you were 17 or 88, someone just said, listen, you can, you know, you're free. Okay? How would that change you? How, could it, how should it change me? If you've understood, that's what we're talking about. It's a great love that begins in God. It's a great love that's beyond belief. But listen, It's a rescue mission. Rescue mission. Dale Bruner, listen to these words. Sometimes, great um, theologian of our day, sometimes perversely, God's one great hour of sharing in Jesus has been interpreted as God's one great act of showing up in the world as a rotten place and all of us in it as miserable sinners. But let us beware of turning God's one great act of love into one great act of damnation. God sent his son on a rescue mission. The world and everyone in it desperately needs not scolding, but saving. We are going clearly going under, but God came into history to pull us out and to rescue us. So listen, friends. You can curse the darkness if you want to. I think most people who aren't Christians, I think they get it, okay? You can curse the darkness if you want to. There's lots of to curse from the newspaper to life to taxes to politics. Oh, my goodness. There's so many things you can point that are wrong, and you're right. They are wrong. It's broken, right? The world's condemned already. Or you can decide to recognize it's a rescue mission, the gospel. This great love is a rescue mission. People are never going to see the love of God in the political discourse, in the news cycle. Listen, in the best of human relationships, because even the best of human relationships are broken, okay? They will see it if they see it in the unexplained, beyond belief, wonder that they see in you, right? That they see in the one leper that returns and says, behold how great love has been lavished. God has lavished on me. That I, sinner as I am, would be called a son or daughter of God. And this is what I am. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for this time and morning. We ask for your blessing. Help us, help me first to be a better student and humble follower of the great love of God in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that while I was yet a sinner, you sent Jesus Christ, your only Son, God the Son, on a rescue mission into a condemned world to kiss me awake and to give me what I didn't deserve, which is your love and your grace and your peace and your spirit. Help us, Lord, to deepen our appreciation of this love, to open our minds to it in new ways that it might truly change us from the inside out and help us to be humble, winsome, grateful, um, Communicators of the love that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, two things to say before I send you out on this uh, beautiful Sunday. One is, if you were here last Sunday, one of the things that was mentioned was Summer Serve, which is an opportunity for, this is mainly a family ministry thing, for a lot of our family ministry volunteers, or hundreds of them, who serve faithfully, not every once in a while, for 40 weeks to take a break. Um, and so we want others who are maybe interested in taking a first step in, in learning and maybe experiencing. You could, some of this commitment, you could, even, you could do it even for one Sunday. You don't even have to do it for eight. But over half of all those needs, it added up to over 300 because they count every individual Sunday as and, and a venue or, or environment as a need. Over half of them were filled in one week. So thank you. But if you'd still like to do that, there are cards in the seat back in front of you um, that has some information, and you can simply uh, do that and prepare to just serve even one Sunday, if two or three, between the 1st of July and the end of August. We'd love for you to do that. And if you are new, maybe you were the Father's Day um, only uh, Sunday, you came with your friend, we're so glad you're here. As soon as you walk out, there's a table to the right. It's just our guest um, leaders are there. They just want to say hello, give you a gift. Glad you're here. Have a great Sunday. Again, happy Father's Day.